This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. So what say of this week in the United States is American is Administrative Assistance Day? a day set aside to honor the professionals who make work work for everyone else. And I can't think of a better homage to them than still working nine to five, a recent documentary on the making of the smash hit film Nine to Five. For those of you who don't know, it was a 1980 comedy starring Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, and Dolly Parton. And that movie, it spawned Anthem, a television series, And quite importantly, used humor in a really strategic way to shine a light on major workplace issues that women face then and now. Sexual harassment, equal pay, or the lack thereof, the need for flexible hours in childcare, and the power of employee activism. Joining us to talk about the documentary and the various issues it examines and the process of getting it made are co-producers and directors, Gary Lane and Camille Hardman. Gary and Camille, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Before we start talking about stuff, um, I wanted to share with our audience a little bit about each of the two of you. Um, So Camille Hartman produces documentaries and reality TV series in L.A. and in her native Australia. She started in TV in Sydney, making animal and travel documentaries before turning to human interest documentaries and film. Camille created the popular DIY network HGTV series Restored, which has just spread the importance of restoration around the globe. And her work's been shown on Discovery, Lifetime, National Geographic, and ABC, amongst other places. And her documentaries have been accepted into myriad acclaimed international film festivals. Gary Lane is an actor, producer, and award-winning documentary filmmaker. His debut documentary, along with his twin brother, Larry Lane, Hollywood to Dollywood, screened in 70 film festivals around the world and won 25 Best Documentary Awards in total. It featured 15 original Dolly Parton songs, creatively financed, as I'm told, by their winning participation on NBC's Fear Factor. Gary and his brother Larry own and operate Twin Zone Productions and cover events and red carpets around the world and have appeared in a range of films, television shows, commercials. Some of them include Dawson's Creek, Spider-Man, and Jack and Jill. So welcome to Women at Work, everybody. Thank you for having us. So, Camille, why don't we start with you? Tell me a little bit about how you and Gary and Larry all found each other and decided to work on this project. So we have a, a very close mutual friend by John, by the name of John Lavin, um, who worked closely with Gary and Larry on Hollywood to Dollywood. And I also did a couple of interviews with Gary and Larry for their documentary as well. And when they thought of the idea of doing a film about uh, nine to five, they gave me a call and said, would you like to be involved? And, um, and I said, yes. So Gary, Larry, so Gary, Larry, by the way, Larry's here with us. Um, He's here, I think, mostly for moral support, but we'll see if we can get him into the conversation. So Gary, talk to me about why Dolly Parton and why nine to five? Absolutely. Um, Just being from North Carolina, we grew up in the South and our parents always loved Dolly, Kenny, those older country artists. So she was always a part of our, you know, being in our childhood. So just being, you know, from North Carolina, being in the South, our parents always listened to country music and Dolly was always a figure, her music in our house. So that was the the start on Dolly. But I think as far as nine to five, um, where we really came up with this idea in 2018, Dolly and Lily and Jane, they kind of went on the Emmys and did that little mini reunion. And there was a lot of buzz around the sequel. So Dolly and Lily and Jane kind of went out and said, we want to do it. So I talked to him and I was like, well, look at this movie. It's been a movie, a song, a TV show, a musical, now a sequel. So initially we wanted to document everything nine to five had been 
leading up to the sequel. And then, you know, luckily we made that call to Camille because Camille really processed it. She did a deep dive. She found the nine to five organization. She found out about Karen Nussbaum and Jane's friendship with her. And that really spearheaded why Jane wanted to make the movie in the first place. So now we kind of jokingly say when the fandom of nine to five with me and my brother met the feminism with Camille, that turned into the steelwork in nine to five that we have today. So one of the things that's always intrigued me about documentaries in general, but particularly when they're issue driven um, and issues that don't necessarily matter to our traditional funders in Hollywood. How did you find the money? How'd the movie get made? Uh, we found it in our pockets. Uh, we we pretty <laughs> much self-funded this film. And for anyone listening out there, we don't recommend doing this. Uh, we had a passion for the project. We did have a connection with Dolly, which she was our first interview. So by getting her, I mean, she was our first celebrity interview. Karen Nussbaum was one of our first interviews to start the project. But once we got Dolly, a lot of those doors opened with Jane and Lily and Alice and Janie and all the amazing women we did interview. Um, but we did a lot of self-funding and, you know, so that's why we're really out now trying to find a home and a wider release for it. So unfortunately, we've kind of found out that a lot of films that came out the year after COVID, we kind of landed in some murky waters. And so we're out there like everybody else, just trying to promote the film and make the film relevant and show why the film is still relevant, which in the Senate, they're having ERA hearings. So this is actually happening in real time and the ERA needs to pass. And we do focus on that in the film that the Equal Rights Amendment never passed and women are not in the Constitution, which is a really sad state of affairs. Um, it touches my heart to hear you guys recognizing that and pointing it out. And also I want to do what we can to try and drum up audience interest for the film, because these are really important issues. But there's two interesting components of this that come together. So one is the art, craft, and exercise of filmmaking and how films get made. And then there are these important issues that are embedded in the film. So Camille, would you share with us a little bit on the key themes in the film and how you balance those two things? Yes, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to go back to the last question as well, because we did have one funder um, other than Larry um, and, and myself and Gary, and that was Regina um, Scully from Artemis Rising. So we were very lucky to get her on board as well. Um, but uh, as Larry and Gary said, you know, we paid out of our pockets and that's been that's been a really big deal for us. Um, but we're also very thankful to Regina for, you know, the contribution that she made as well. So I think that the biggest themes that we really were touching on was also what was, you know, really focused on in the film and also the basic tenets of the nine to five organ women's organisation that was started in 1973. So it was very much about equal pay, sexual harassment, childcare and job promotion, um, you know, and, and it was really important for us to also, before you talked about comedy in the original film, it was also very important to be in our film as well because, you know, the one thing that we learned about 9 to 5 was, you know, putting information through, you know, with humour and being able to also draw a wider audience into our film. So, and then we had the narrative that ran through that Gary just mentioned of the ERA. Because we were looking at a 40-year timeline, we wanted to know, you know, what has and has not changed in the last, you know, over 40 years since the film came out in but also looking at the ERA, which was also happening throughout those years and that sort of transformation that, you know, has and has not happened as well. And as Gary said, you know, we're still looking at the ERA passing, which is, you know, no one can believe it. But then there's also things like equal pay. We haven't received, you know, as women, you know, equal pay yet, but also if you start looking at women of colour, you know, Latinx women, I mean, you know, that is another issue that is incredibly, um, you know, worrisome that, you know, that that is, you know, that there's such a disparity. And then sexual harassment, as we know with the Me Too movement, it's happened to all of us. You know, I've had a lot of sexual harassment, especially when I was a waitress back in the day. So, you know, and I know we speak to young women all the time. This is still prevalent. 
childcare, the fact that there isn't mandatory childcare, that there isn't maternity leave. In Australia, we have those things, but in the US, you don't have that. Um, and also job promotions. We know that there are a lot of women that aren't getting promoted in a job and men are still being, you know, we're being superseded by men. So, Gary, as you took this deep dive together into these issues all interrelating, um, the nine to five activism movement, um, the ERA, lots of the same people were working on the two, um, and the importance of media and storytelling and celebrities in helping to carry these these messages. Um, I'm going to ask the question for which there's no tidy answer, but why 40 years later do you think nothing's changed? Like we haven't made substantive progress. Well, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to Zoe Nichols and Zoe Nicholson is one of our activists, a big ERA activist who's in the film. And I was just talking to her this morning because I really wanted to know about the Senate hearings that are taking place tomorrow. And they already know that they're going to lose that vote. But the right. reason they're, the reason they're doing that vote is to put everyone on blast that's saying no, so they can hopefully be voted out. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, one thing she pointed out is that the founding fathers who founded this country, there were no women in the room and there were no people of color in the room. And the deck has been stacked against them since we founded this country. And they're still trying to get in into those rooms. And, you know, luckily, a lot of women have been voted into the Senate. And we talk about that in our film because, you know, with the whole uh, Anita Hill hearings and everything that happened with Clarence Thomas in 1991, in 1993, loads of women ran for Congress and ran for seats. And so it's been getting better every year. But as Alice and Janie says in our film, until we get more women into positions of power, it's not going to change. We've got to get in the rooms. And, and, you know, that's unfortunately the way the country was founded. It's been stacked against women and people of color from the beginning. Yeah, that those systemic issues have clearly not gone away. And it takes the people in those rooms to change the laws and policies um, that you know, give it its um, endurance. Um, but the other component here, which you guys are leveraging, is um, the power of the pulpit in many ways. That, you know, when I think about why didn't the ERA pass, um, so much of it had to do with, like, the anti-propaganda, um, manipulations of in storytelling, in media, in journalism, um, that really made people afraid of things that weren't real and not understand how not and and block them from understanding how fundamentally right and equitable this would could make things. Um, so as you've been when as you were thinking about what you wanted out of the documentary, how did you um, prioritize your storytelling to make sure that you could be a voice against that? Absolutely. And one thing with Camille, with our editing, because, you know, we edited this film through COVID, which was, a you know, you had to learn how to do that. We had editors in Ireland. And but one thing we wanted to do was we didn't want to, you know, be so preachy in it. So if there's activism and marching and there's talking about the ERA, then here comes Dolly, Lily and Jane, because we really wanted it to be, you know, educational and entertaining. So that was a very fine line to walk, because if you preach at somebody too much, they're going to tune you out. Um, but, you know, luckily, because what we were able to do, which we setting out, we had no idea we were going to do this, but to interview Dolly, Lily, Jane, Dabney Coleman, all of the originals to have something like Kelly Clarkson and Dolly Parton say, we're going to do nine to five as a duet exclusive for your film. We've got all these fun little nine to five nuggets. So we say that we hide the medicine and the candy. We bring the audiences in with the nine to five, you know, wow, amazing. And then when we get you in the seat, we really try to educate you. And, you know, one thing that Zoe Nicholson told me today, it's important to point out that no other amendment in United States history has ever had a deadline on it except mm -hmm. the Equal Rights Amendment. And it's because it's pertaining to women. There's deadlines on lots of things pertaining to women. Rape kits, there's deadlines on them. So if you think about that, like how Zoe always, I try to channel Zoe because I, I love her and she educates me. You know, For me the, and my brother at the beginning of this film, it was all about nine to five and Dolly, Lily and Jane. But when I started meeting people like Lily Ledbetter, Zoe Nicholson, Karen Nussbaum, Ellen Cassidy, the women who have spent 50 and 60 years of their lives fighting for women's rights. It just split the switch 
from me and my brother. And it really made us allies for, for working women and the issues they have to deal with. So we just kind of did a flip on the whole film when we started meeting these women that were not the star power ladies. So I want to go back to something you were saying, because it's important. I just want to unpack it a little bit. This issue of the deadlines on these various types of legislation. Um, What's your take on why those deadlines have been attached to them so that they could just die on the vine? Oh, absolutely. Just so they could continue to keep women out of the room. It all goes back to being in the room and they want to keep women out of the room. And, you know, like Zoe told me today, the 27th Amendment, which was the one that was, you know, previous to the one they're trying to pass now, took 203 years to pass. And it was one basically saying that Congress could continue to get yearly raises. So it took 203 years to pass <laughs> all about their money in their pocket. But yet women and the ERA got a 10-year ban. And, you know, it's interesting to also, it's also to point out under, um, you know, with President uh, Trump, you know, you had 35 states had passed the ERA and it had ratified it through. So the next two, which would have been Nevada and Illinois, those came along in 2017 to 2018, and the archivist published them immediately when the states ratified it. So when it happened in Virginia in 2020, Trump was still in there. So Trump told Attorney General Barr, do not publish it. So he would not let Virginia publish those, you know, the results of the ratification. And we're still underneath that Barr memo right now. And, you know, another Sorry, so real quick. that's still something that could be like that's an executive order to lift that memo. Right. Absolutely. And so that's why they're really putting pushing on Biden, because that was one of him and Kamala. They ran on that, that they were going to pass the ERA. And so Biden just in real time about an hour ago came out and said he's pulling the full resources of the White House, putting it behind the ERA with the Senate votes, and he wants it to pass. So I think he realizes. And another thing Zoe told me, you know, the Congress back in the 1800s, where they formed the buildings and where the laws are being made, and then women did slowly start trickling in. They had to build women's bathrooms because they never intend, intended yes. women to need to go to the bathroom in those buildings. So she she just likes to draw the line that women are fighting for it, and they've been fighting for it for a long, long time, 100 right. years and just what the the difference would be if if women were in the room. So Camille, I have a question for you. One of the things that um, we've learned over time is that especially those white feminists, those of us who have been part of these movements that have gotten a lot of visibility and traction was that we also had a lot to learn about the experience of women of color. How did your modern sensibility help you make sense of what you learned by looking at the rise of the movement, how the film was made, um, and where we can increase our sensitivity to this and advocate for change for everybody at once. Look, I think there's there's still a long way to go. I mean, uh, looking back at history, you know, we haven't included enough people of color and women of color. You know, I think that's been uh, discussed a lot and it's been incredibly prevalent. You know, in our film, it was something that I, you know, really, really pushed for was that we needed to have voices of all different types and women of all different ages and backgrounds and colours and, you know, because it is such an important part of our, you know, of who we are as a, a feminist society to include every single voice that we possibly can because everybody has a different experience and everybody has had a different experience. And the more of those voices that, you know, that we talk to and discuss, you know, in our film we spoke to, you know, women of colour from the South, women of colour from, you know, New York. Not everybody made it in, you know, depending on, you know, we had we probably did about 60 interviews and only about 20 interviews got in, but we made sure that, you know, we had voices from every part of, you know, society. It's um, it's one of the gifts that we get by having you guys re-examine this with our contemporary perspective. It really makes a difference. Um, by the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM channel 132, mm-hmm. and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. And my guests today are Gary Lane and Camille Hardman, the co-producers and co-directors of the documentary Still Working 9 to 5. So I want to like dig in a little bit to all these exciting people that you got to work with. So, you know, first, 
like kudos to you. You realize there are stories to be told here. You know, I feel like Dolly Parton is this conduit to things like meaningful and good. And we just need to follow that light. And you really brought some important um, critical thinking about where our society is to bear on it. You got funding. You had the concept. How did you get all these stars to show up and make time and participate in this? Uh, absolutely. I, I, honestly, the the friendship with our uh, Steve Summers, who's Dolly's creative manager, he's also an EP on the film. You know, we ran the idea by him, what we were trying to do, and he really saw the vision of what we we're trying to do. He has two daughters, so he got it right away. And he said, I really feel like if I can get you a sit down with Dolly, that'll kind of help you, you know, get greenlit and get things moving. And that's exactly what happened, because after we got Dolly, then we got Lily and we got uh, Rita Moreno, Alice and Janie and Jane Fonda. They all kind of fell in place. after. It took two years to get from Dolly to Dabney, who was our last, Dabney was our last interview on February 22nd of 2020. So literally COVID shut the world down five days after we got Dabney. So we were able to edit all the way through COVID. Um, but those women have been amazing. Lily and, uh, you know, Dolly, they've talked about the documentary. They've really kind of been out there campaigning for us. And, you know, and we also shine a light on Lily Ledbetter and Zoe Nicholson, just the activist women. They all kind of came together and they've all seen the film and they all love the way the film is edited. We're very lucky that 9 to 5 has been so many things because in 1982, when we were allowed to focus on the TV show with Rita Moreno, we could show Zoe fasting for the Equal Rights Amendments on Congress steps. And then in 2009, when it became a musical with Alice and Janney, we showed Lily Ledbetter signing the Fair Pay Act with Obama. So, so many stepping stones, we were able to intersect the nine to five timeline with the working women's timeline. And Camille, how was it for you preparing for these interviews? How'd you do the homework to get ready? I sat, I sat on the internet and read just about everything about each of the women. I mean, it was a huge amount of prep work to, uh, you know, to, to, to sort of get everything, you know, ready in my head to ask all those questions um, and just be incredibly aware of the, the timelines and, and how history informs each one of those women, but also the activism work that they each had done um, and also, you know, what their viewpoint was at that particular time and what their viewpoint is now because, you know, people evolve. And, mm -hmm. and then the questions because, you know, I didn't, act, I didn't ask so many activism questions to Dolly knowing that that's not really her platform. You know, she, her activism is about how she carries herself within the world where Jane is more getting out there and discussing issues and same with Lily and Rita and Alison have their own ways of doing their activism as well. So it was looking at each one of them and, and finding out and seeing, you know, because it was also watching a huge amount of videos and seeing, you know, how their place in the world informs them today. It, um, did you bring any fangirl to the mix? Like for I as this list of women, they are all heroes of mine in different ways and people whose work like I admire them as women, as people in our society. And I enjoy them and admire them as artists. Where did they resonate for you, Camille? I, I mean, I to be honest, I mean, I had I get, hadn't seen the film for a long time. Um, I had. My fandom came from the research that I had done for the film. And the more and more and more that I watched Dolly in interviews, I realised how incredibly smart she is. I mean, of course, I knew, I, I, you know, I listened to Jolene, 9 to 5, all of the time. <laughs> I didn't understand, you know, the the... The idol, the, 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 you know, the, how she was such an idol, you know, mm -hmm. and, and an idol, but just watching her videos and seeing her humor. I mean, she is the greatest deflector I think I've ever watched. She is it's so incredibly smart at how she deflects and the way that she was treated in so many interviews in the 70s and 80s was actually appalling. Mm -hmm. And she was, she made humor 
in every single one of those interviews and she never, ever took it personally. Well, I mean, you know, who knows if she took it personally, but the way that she was able to stay within herself and stay grounded and deflect in humour, I just think was brilliant. I mean, and, and then you look at Jane. I mean, she's been in it's such an incredible activist her entire life and the issues that she talks about and that she, you know, it's everything from, as we know now, environmentalism to women to economics to, you know, looking at Indigenous rights and, you know, the, and, and in, uh, how people need to stay, you know, on their, you know, on their land. And, I, I mean, I've been amazed with what she's been able to do as well. And so all of them are incredible. So, Gary, before we take a quick break, um, you've had much more time with Dolly because of the first documentary that you did. Um, where did you see that combination of her, I think, mastery of how to manage herself in these situations, along with her brilliance and humor? Yeah, absolutely. In, in the first uh, film, it was a situation where we had gone from Hollywood to Dollywood and we were on the park and we had written a script we wanted to give her. So then they kind of say, OK, well, the Hallmark Channel's filming here. You guys are filming here. So Dolly makes her discretion who she wants to meet. So we went to a lunch and then a phone call came in and the woman was like, uh-huh, they're great. Yep. Uh-huh. And so then she got off the phone. She goes, well, Dolly's going to come meet you. So then we didn't know we were going to get a film with her. And then we met her. She was so great. And it was just a moment for us because she was in front of us and we had grown up with her. And it's just like anybody else. If you have someone you admire that much when they're in your face, I don't know how Camille did the interviews because we would have probably not conducted anything with these women if it was us because we love them all. But, you know, she she met us and she let us use the songs. And when she was driving away in her little carriage, she goes all the way from Hollywood to Dollywood. And John Lavin <laughs> almost died because he knew that was the catchphrase of the whole film. Um, but then when we met her the second time with Camille, it was interesting. After the filming of the interview, Dolly came over to us and she was talking to me and Larry. And she said, well, I've told Rachel all about the movie because Rachel played her part in the TV series, her sister, Rachel. So Camille, after Dolly had left, Camille goes, it was just so great seeing her just talk to you guys one on one because Camille knows how much we love Dolly. And I think anybody loves Dolly. I even said a joke. I'm going to make a documentary and go out into the world and trying to find any one person that doesn't love Dolly Parton. And that was going to be the whole concept behind a new documentary. So unfortunately, we need to take a short break, but don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to continue my discussion with Gary Lane and Camille Hardman, the co-producers and co-directors of the new documentary, Still Working 9 to 5. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. We'll be back in a bit. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. And my guests today are Gary Lane and Camille Hardman, the co-producers and co-directors of the new documentary, Still Work in 9 to 5, which examines the 40-year evolution of gender inequality and discrimination in the workplace since the 1980 release of the seminal comedy 9 to 5 that starred Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Dolly Parton, and Dabney Coleman. So right before the break, um, Gary, you were sharing with us, um, and you too, Camille, the story of you know how you brought these amazing stars together. Um, learned about their multidimensionality as artists and as people, citizens and activists. Um, and you had this different experience with each one of them. Um, you know, Dabney Coleman was the fop in the movie. He was the person we were there to hate. Um, what was it like interviewing him about this? And where's his head on all of these issues? Camille actually helped orchestrate the Dabney interview. And I just thought the fact that he was 90 and he was so sharp and, you know, he he really weighed in. For one, I love Dabney Coleman and everything he's ever done. I knew all of his films. And so I was kind of starstruck. I'm all starstruck by all of them, Rita Moreno. But uh, Dabney was really interesting because he was our last one. And, you know, Camille really started driving the issues. And he was really funny because he would act like he'd get emotional. And then he'd kind of do like a just kidding. And Camille, he was kind of keeping her on her toes. And Roth was another one uh, we interviewed who was the costumist who did that as well with Camille. So, um, but Dabney was just really sharp. He was really on it. And, you know, I was, I was just glad he was our, our last interview. Oh, and another fun thing. Oh, sorry, Camille. Another fun thing with Dabney that we didn't know, because I know everything 
that goes on. But I didn't know that he had got the role of Private Benjamin with Goldie Hawn, and he turned it down that part because he said, I know I'm going to get nine to five. And then he did. So I wow, didn't know that. that was prescient on his part, which meant both were great movies in their own way and not so you- unimportant in the feminist canon. So, Gary, one of the things I'd love to hear from you, partly because there's so much that's in this film and also to get people excited about it. What would you list are kind of the core themes of it? Yeah, absolutely. The core themes, um, you're obviously, you're going to get all of the fun fandom with Dolly, Lily, and Jane and Dabney talking about being on the set, what it was like making the film, why they needed to make the film. So all of that is there. A lot of behind the scenes fun stuff. And I'm a big fan of 9 to 5. And, and you know, I was learning so many things just by listening to them talk about it. So that's a fun thing. You're going to get all that 9 to 5 fun facts. But you really are going to kind of, by the end of it, we call it the third act. We really show you, hey, 9 to 5 was a lot of fun. They shine lights on equal pay, equal job advancement, universal child care, sexual harassment. But guess what? 43 years later, now everybody says 40, but it's 43. 43. 43 years later, those issues women are still fighting for in the workplace. So you kind of go out of there with a what can I do and why is this not changed way of thinking, which is what we want to do. That's why we this film has been doing so well on the film festival circuit. We pretty much open and close every festival we go to, which is great because the opening and closing film, they really know that that is going to draw an audience. And we know it's because of the nine to five fandom, but the audience searchers are selling out and seeing the film. We've won jury award. We won the jury award in Palm Springs. We won the best of the fest in Nashville, uh, Idlewild. We got a Critics' Choice Documentary Award for Best Historical Documentary. So we're kind of blown away with the success and and how the film has been embraced. But it's important to know that's only from film festival audiences. So we feel like if it does get on a streaming or does get on distribution, it'll reach so many more people with the message. And that's our goal here. Oh, yeah. There's a there's a country that needs to see it clearly. But I want to dive in for a minute uh, um, because one of the things about your work that's so important is that as filmmakers, you are raising important issues. You're getting in front of people in ways that can really change how we think individually and how we think collectively. Talk to me about um, how you find the film festivals, how you choose them, why they're important to the promotion and advancement of the film. Absolutely. Um, Film Freeway is just the best way out there right now. And, you know, we, we actually through we opened at south by southwest film festival last year so through the reviews and and everything as we we're holding a 92 percent on rotten tomatoes so it's been really well received by all the the major critics so when you do have that kind of uh the positive reviews and the buzz behind you a lot of the film festivals now reach out to us and they say we would like to submit your film so we've been very lucky in that department because and we do know it's about nine to five and Dolly, Lily, and Jane, and we, we don't hide from that because that's how we get the eyes on the film, but then we give you a big message by the end of the film to say, hey, stuff still needs to change, and you know, and they're, they're even talking about that sequel. You know, Dolly, Lily, and Jane have come out and said, we've got to get a script that really gets it in there that we all agree with and we all love, and that hasn't happened yet, but, you know, and Dolly jokes and says, uh, you know, if we don't get on it quick, it's going to have to be called 95 because they're all getting older. <laughs> I thought that was that was really funny. So, so Gary, I also want to go back a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, you know, one of the things we've talked about a lot on the show is women at work. And we're trying to bring on role models and people who can share tactics and strategies, help us look through various lenses at the bigger issues. You're all of that. Your brother, Larry, too. And um, yet we don't often have men who are in this role. So talk to me about how how you tuned in to these issues and came to really care about them. Because it's not typical. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, that's why we we do have Dabney and we, we men have to be involved in the conversation to help bring the change that's needed. So, you know, we, we stand behind the making of the film and interviewing the women over that whole two year process. And again, it wasn't the fandom of sitting with Dolly and Lily and Jane in a room and watching Camille interview them. It was the other women. It was Ellen Cassidy, 
talking about, you know, one of the secretaries in the nine to five organization had to sew her boss's pants up while he was still wearing them. I remember sitting at the table with, you know, one of the ladies who was there with the makeup and the sound person. And we all just looked at each other when she said it in the interview, because you just can't wrap your head around what women were dealing with in offices in the seventies and eighties. And it's not, yeah. And it's not as bad now because there's there after me too. And Harvey Weinstein, there is a more woke culture where men kind of know I can't get away with that anymore. It is still there, but it still has rest. So we think things like this, you know, it's interesting. We call it a mic drop moment. So, you know, we had amazing archivists that were working on this film and they would send us just downloads of folders of things that pertain to nine to five. So we got this one that pertained to the musical and it was the red carpet in 2009 and Dolly, Lily and Jane were all there, but who comes down the carpet, but Harvey Weinstein and Harvey Weinstein goes, you know, this, this film, uh, this musical alone could just survive on my company. And he says stuff like this. And then we found out he was a producer of nine to five, the musical. He put money into it to make it about sexual harassment and the documentary and and the musical at that time. And then look at the irony of that, what he was doing behind the scenes of that. And that was 2009. So it didn't happen with the Me Too till 2016. So that just shows you how long he was allowed to get away with that. Oh, yeah, that it was just percolating under the surface. But I want to go back to this. And, you know, you had to have brought, um, I so appreciate that you, that this process taught you things, exposed you to things that you really hadn't seen up close beforehand. But I I posit that you wouldn't have been on this project if you weren't fundamentally feminist to start off with. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. You know, in any situation where someone is being put down, and I've always related to that being from North Carolina. And, you know, I even, I talked to my mom and I was like, because she worked at a daycare. And so even in, in the filming, when I saw the original 9 to 5, I remember asking my mom, did you ever have to deal with any of this? And she said, no, I didn't have to deal with it personally, being in a daycare situation. But she said, but a lot of people I know did. And a lot of people you know did. I was too young. I was like maybe 12. So she didn't go into detail. But, you know, it was just something where I, I kind of could see that women were constantly having to fight harder than men to get somewhere in the world. And, you know, it, it all goes back to, I love Zoe to death. I always talk about Zoe Nicholson and she really changed my life. When we do Q and A's and she can't be there, I always channel her because it was interesting. We went to, uh, we went to Boulder, Colorado, and we were the closing night film, and there was a huge crowd there. It was sold out. And so when we got up on the Q&A, and this was the first time that Camille was not able to come, because usually it's me and my brother and Camille. So it's very important to have her there. And these women, the first question a woman said, why do I have to sit here and watch you two make a documentary about women's rights? And I had to convince her that I knew about the ERA. I knew about what's happening in the Senate. I knew about the bar memo. I knew about what's going on in Congress and what women are trying to fight for and why the Equal Rights Amendment is so important. Because it really, people say, what's it going to do? It's going to take gender out of the Constitution and put everybody on an equal playing field. And that's why all these older white men like Grassley and, you know, that's why they're fighting it, because they don't want women and people of color and trans people. They don't want them to have the power that they've been able to hold for so long. That's the truth of the whole matter. Well, I want to celebrate the fact that there are men and white men who are making this movie and who care about these issues because we're all in this together. It's how we make the change happen. Um, So for me, a hearty thank you. And I think from a lot of our listeners too. Um, And I meal every day because Camille and I've been admitted with my brother, we really were making a nine to five kind of a fandom piece until Camille came into the mix and brought the feminism and brought Karen Nussbaum and the nine to five organization. And it really sent us into a whole different direction of the film. And now here we are a year after the film's been released. We focus so much on the equal rights amendment not passing. There's hearings going on tomorrow. So this could not be more in real time with what's happening right now for working women. So at that intersection of the activism and the fandom, I want to come back to some of the actresses who are in the film. You know, often we'll have great script writers um, and who find great actors and they together construct a character who is mighty, who can change the world. And we like to tell those stories and hear those stories. In this case, you have women in particular who are involved in this film who are heroes in their own right. 
Um, as you were saying before, Jane, Fonda has been an activist, a woman with a conscience and influence for my entire life. Um, I even think, if I'm correct, that her whole workout series, she donated all of the profits from the workout series series for social causes that she cared about. Are you guys, is that correct? Are you aware of that? Um, I know she, do I don't know if she donated all. I know she donated a lot of the proceeds and she, you know, she, while we were filming her in 2020, when we did her interview, she was making an environmental documentary. So her whole life has been activism. And, you know, and Dolly will say, and even in the film, you know, Dolly talked about, she goes, well, I told Jane right up front, I'm not an activist and I'm not going to be active, you know, activism in this film. She said, you know, I write songs about women and I tell my stories the way I do it. I'm not going to ever march on picket lines. And so, you know, Dolly kind of confronted Jane and Jane and Dolly both opened up to that. You know, we were kind of really blown away with how much Lily and Dolly and Jane, they really did open up about it being Dolly's first film. And there was so much stuff I learned just by listening to them. So that's some, something we feel like we're giving the fans of nine to five and fans of Dolly, Lily and Jane, because you're right. They are their own stars. Even, you know, Lily being, you know, a comedian and she was, she was a lesbian comedian having to try to fight that. And, you know, they've all become their own stars. And with grace, we, we, Honestly, you can't write it because Lily and Jane and Rita were just in 80 for Brady. And then Lily and Jane were just in Moving On. Dolly is hosting the CMAs on May 11th. So these women are just everywhere right now, which is only helping us with the documentary and the message of the documentary because they're showing how relevant they are. There's an ageism factor as well in 9 to 5 Huge. that we couldn't we couldn't focus on it because we had the other core four issues but you know he to heart tells Roz you know you should see some of the old crones coming through here so there was even an ageism factor in nine to five that that we couldn't quite you know focus on hopefully if someone writes that good sequel that's they can why we need it focus on trans issues they can focus on abortion issues you know there's a lot of ways to make that sequel really relevant and still have Dolly Lily and Jane be involved with it so I want to come back to Dolly for a moment because it's interesting when you share the story that She's like, I'm not an activist, like, you know. So Jane Fonda is a public activist, um, really using her celebrity in very considered ways to draw attention to the causes she cares about. But Nine to Five as a song, while it was, it is, you know, a pop hit, delightful. Once it's like an earworm, once it's in your head, you can't get it out. It was everywhere. Um, it's radical in its lyrics. Dolly has stuff to say. So is it fair to say that her activism is there? It just takes a different form? Absolutely. Her activism is in her writing. She's such a powerful writer. And it's very interesting because she will even say that her original nine to five that she wrote in 1980, she wrote it on the set of actually making the film. She was so bored with her downtime. <laughs> she looked around at things to write into that song. Um, so she will even say that her hit, uh, in 1980, was kind of bubblegum, poppy. It was a little poppy. So what happened was uh, Shane McAnally, who's a really good friend of ours, uh, he came on board and became an EP. He wanted to try to do something different with 9 to 5. And Steve Summers said, you know, I give you permission, play around, make it a different song, try to see what you can do with it. So he made it really haunting and it was a slowed down version. And he got Kelly Clarkson to be a part of it. And so the interesting thing was when I played it for him, Steve said, I've heard her sing that on concert stages around the world thousands of times, but I've never heard the words of the song until I just heard the slow, melancholy, haunted version. And so then we were told that when they played it to Dolly, that she squealed three times. She was like so excited. And so then we just knew, okay, Dolly loves it. And we're going to have a slow Kelly version for the, for the documentary exclusive. So three days later, we get a call from Steve Summers. He goes, are you sitting down? And I'm like, we are now. And he goes, okay, so Dolly has had a spiritual awakening. And I was like, I don't know what the hell that means, but it's going to be good. <laughs> and so he told us that Dolly had listened to the song over and over and over again. And she knew that she wanted it to be a duet. And she knew exactly what she wanted to add to her part to the duet. And that's how it, it came to be as our new exclusive song. And it came out uh, September 9th. I believe it dropped last year. And it's had over 15 million streams. It's been a huge success. But that was just something that Dolly also lended us because she's never let anybody redo that song. You know, they've redone Jolene a hundred times. They've redone all of them, but she never let anybody touch nine to five. So she did 
create this slow haunting version. And she said she wanted it to change. She told Rolling Stone in an interview, I wanted a different version because nine to five that I wrote in 1980 is so much different now because women are still fighting for this. So that new version with Dolly and Kelly really shows that. It reveals so much about her, not just um, her excellence as a performer and her talents as a musician. I mean, she is one of the most important songwriters of all time, never mind the 20th century. Her catalog is extraordinary. It's a huge achievement. And one of the great tests, and I remember I'm going to give credit to this, this is from Mark Dicciani, one of um, the music instructors where I went to college, um, talked about the test of a great song is ca can it adapt to different interpretations, different approaches. It's why the great standards are the great standards. And Dolly's writing the great standards of our era. And it's amazing to see her reinterpret it herself with this different meaning behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And a funny thing about it, um, you know, when you, you create a film and when the end credits start to roll at the end of the film, you want people to clap or do something to let you know they, had a, they went on the journey, did a great film. But we've set ourselves up where we never get a clap at the end of our film because Dolly and Kelly both agreed to go into the studio and they recorded themselves singing the duet. So our end credits, when it comes up, Dolly and Lily pop up as the credit. Kelly. Dolly and Kelly pop up as the credits roll through the middle and they sing the duet. So people start to go and then they'll stop because they want to hear the words. Because the they're riveted. Yeah, so we never we never get it, but people love that that duet version, and we love the duet, and you know we thank Dolly and Kelly for that, which was you know absolutely amazing to do that for our film. It's just another you know thing that we're very thankful for that happened and let us know that we made a, a strong film for them to even want to do that. So as you were going through the process of making it, doing all of these interviews, you're clearly learning from everybody around you, and you shared some of what you were uncovering. When you think about what was surprising, what was important, what changed you the most of what you heard? Um, uh, one with really in particular with Lily Tomlin was finding out that she had dealt with office harassment. She had gone into a situation and she told the story where she had gone and uh, whoever the boss was on the floor had tried to get her into a room and she kind of felt like, this is not a good situation. I need to get out of here. And then Jane didn't tell us in her interview, but she has had a similar situation in, in an office setting. So just the fact that they were dealing with that. And then another thing, uh, right before we went to South by Southwest, when we premiered last year, we went home to North Carolina and we invited four of our favorite teachers, uh, teachers over, which is Miss Pope, Miss Green, Miss Best and Miss Smith. And we wanted to show them the film. So we showed them the film and they really were along for the journey. And then after it was over, we were sitting in the den at our, at our mom's house. And, you know, the first one was Miss Best. And she goes, you know, before I was a teacher, I was a secretary. And I remember every Monday when I would come into the office for off of the weekend, I would have to weigh on a scale to show she didn't gain weight. So that was the first thing I was like, wow, that's my typing teacher telling oh my me. God. Dealt with this. And then Miss Smith, who was our art teacher, she said, you know, I remember being in the teachers, the board meetings with the principal, and he would be the buddy buddy with all the guy teachers, and he would be condescending and talk down to all the women teachers. So when they started weighing in, I was like, we've made something that is going to strike a chord with a lot of people that can relate to the issues that we're focused on in the film. So that kind of let us know we had made a, a really strong film. Okay, we got to stop for a minute because I am just charmed to pieces by the idea that you're in touch with your teachers. For, is this from high school? Absolutely, from high school. We and we actually we had our 25 year reunion and we invited you know teachers to come. We're we're from you know it's called Rosewood High School. It's a small town in in North Carolina. So we had maybe 70 some people graduate. So all of the teachers are still you know still there. And it's funny because being a twin, you know. It, this is not going to sound ready, but I don't care. Um, I, I was horrible at algebra, just terrible at algebra. So on the algebra exams, I would stay out and my brother would go in and take the exam and he would purposely miss things. So we told that in an interview years later and my teacher, Miss Pope, called me and she said, um, you're going to have to come back and take all your algebra. And she was joking, but, you know, that that's the kind of, you know, relationship we grew up with. And, and we respect our teachers because they, they're the ones that shape you and mold you into who you become. So there was this moment where they were all so proud of us because of the film we made and it was about women's rights and it had issues in there they dealt with 
you know, so, you know, we, we really, it was a full circle moment for us when they watched the film. They must've been just beaming with pride, just as you guys were. So um, as you now are, you know, the next goal is clearly get this into wide release. Lots of people need to see this, but I can't imagine that's the only thing you're working on right now. What's up next for you guys? What are you dreaming about, envisioning? Yeah, honestly, and I can I can say it, what, what we really want to focus on, uh, when we met Lily Ledbetter, we did about a three-hour interview with her. She's just an amazing woman, the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, and just what she's meant to women in history uh, she has about five minutes in the film and we totally want to do a complete documentary on her story. They're actually making a movie of her life. Patricia Clarkson is going to play Lily in the film. So we're kind of gearing up to the Lily Ledbetter documentary. We've got so much footage with her and Zoe uh, Nicholson is a huge part of that because we were able to bring them together. And it was funny because I called Zoe on the phone. I was like, Zoe said, we're going to take you to Virginia for the 2020 vote when Virginia ratified for the ERA and we're going to have a special guest. And she goes, who's it going to be? It's not Parton, is it? It's not Fonda. Zoe's kind of funny like that. She's like, it's not Parton, it's not Fonda. And we said, no, it's, it's going to be Lily Ledbetter. And Zoe got so emotional and crying, she couldn't talk on the other end of the phone. So when they came together, they just had this kindred spirit meeting. And there's just, you know, this magic between Lily and Zoe. So Zoe will be a part of that, that film as well. This is all so exciting. I can't wait to see what you do next. I really hope the film gets picked up and know that we're here and happy to help tell your stories as they emerge. Um, so if people want to find more about you guys, about the documentary, where can they go to learn more? Absolutely. It's uh, stillworking9to5.com and that's stillworking9to5.com. And that has all the film festivals we're going to be going to. Um, I will say I can't really jinx it but we have a, a huge distribution deal on the table and dolly's involved with it as well but we can't jinx it until it happens but we're hoping we're going to be able to announce a wide release very soon okay so we're all going to keep our fingers crossed and send positive vibes into the universe that it comes to fruition for you guys yes um, i just want to say for camille she's up in uh she's in north queensland australia so i think she dropped off so but i, I know she would have loved to have been here for the rest of the interview well, Gary, Larry, thank you so much for joining us today and quite importantly for this incredible, important work that you guys are doing. Appreciate it all so much. And thanks for sharing the time with us today. Thank you, thank Laura, you. for having us. We really appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have a question, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle at SXM Business. And I'm on LinkedIn. Many thanks, as always, to my great team, Kara Pogue, my producers, Dana Cash and Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks, and Teresa Kosadak. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, and go pour yourself a cup of ambition. To survive. Site from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.